When they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he was going on ahead. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us. It's nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. After he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. But he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, Weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures for us? They got up right then and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying to each other, The Lord really has risen. He appeared to Simon. Then the two disciples described what had happened along the road and how Jesus was made known to them as he broke the bread. Glory to the Lord. Thanks, Grant. Oak Folk kickball legend, uh, Grant Dunaway, everybody. <laughs> if, you, if you haven't been following Oak Folk kickball closely, first of all, shame on you. Second of all, it's getting really exciting this season, I'm told. Uh, so if you need an additional sport to follow, might I suggest Oak Folk kickball? <laughs> uh, how's everybody doing today? <laughs> Good. Um, well, I am continuing our We Are series with the prompt, We Are the Body of Christ. So my mother-in-law, Judy, is a huge fan of TV and movies, especially anything that's in a series. Something that she does that's really incredible is when a new season of a TV show that she likes or a new movie and a series that she likes is announced, she starts at the very beginning of the series and watches the whole thing all over again just before the new episode or film is released. Impressive, right? It's commitment. And I think that this makes her an ideal consumer of television and movies. <laughs> She's able to catch all the little details and callbacks that most people might miss given the length of time between releases. So to that writer in the writer's room who hid some obscure reference to season one, episode three, in the middle of season eight, episode six, I have great news for you, Judy noticed. Uh, I had a Hebrew professor in seminary who constantly reminded us that the writers of scripture assume that you have nothing better to do all day than to sit around and read scripture. And what he meant by this was that the writers of scripture also made these callbacks to other parts of scripture, and that when we encounter them in the text, we're expected to know what they're talking about. Sometimes these callbacks are pretty obscure to us 21st century English-speaking Christians, like it could be a small grammatical change or a Hebrew vocabulary word that's only used a couple of times in the Bible. Other times, however, these callbacks come through very clearly in the narrative, like in the one that Grant just read for us. Luke's description of Jesus' post-resurrection meal with these two unnamed travelers on the road to Emmaus is one in which Jesus takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to his companions. And this should immediately set off alarm bells and take us back to the Passover feast that Jesus had just shared with his disciples on the night before his death. Luke's gospel has Jesus sharing a lot of meals. So many meals, in fact, that the author Robert Karras wrote this book called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. 
And in it, he says uh, that you could define the narrative flow of Luke's gospel by saying that Luke's Jesus is either at dinner, going to dinner, or coming to dinner, coming from dinner. But for all of these meals, only a few times do we ever hear this formulation of taking, breaking, blessing, and giving. The first time, Jesus is establishing his kingdom as one that would be built on the sacrificial gifts of his body broken and his blood poured out. And again, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus expands his kingdom by exactly two members when he takes over as host of a meal that he wasn't even initially planning on staying for. And he takes the bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it. My friend Chris Green says that this passage in particular highlights that communion is not merely a ritual of remembrance, but that it is a community-making meal. That is to say that as we partake in the body of Christ, the bread taken, blessed, broken, given, we all in some way become the body of Christ, a community taken, blessed, broken, and given. So as we explore this week what it means to say that we are the body of Christ, I think it might be helpful to use this Eucharistic formulation of taken, blessed, broken, and given as a framework to help us understand. Let's start our reflection with what it means to be taken. I've got to be honest and say that in the initial outline of this sermon in my head, I left this category out. When I read these communion stories, I honestly gloss over the part that says that Jesus took the bread because, honestly, it doesn't seem nearly as important as the blessing or breaking and giving. But as I read Henry Nouwen's Life of the Beloved in preparation for this morning, I realized that the taking of the bread is absolutely essential. Without the taking, there would be no bread to bless, break, and give. In the same way as if we are to understand ourselves as Christ's body, blessed, broken, and given, we must first understand ourselves as taken by Christ. Henry Nouwen doesn't really like that taken word. He says it's a little too aggressive or coercive um, for the kind of invitation that Christ gives us to join his body. He instead opts for chosen. Instead of taken by Christ, we're chosen by Christ. But whatever word we decide to use, the point that needs to be made here is that as the body of Christ, we are first and foremost not just any body, but Christ's body. Christ is both the one who gathers us, takes us, and the one to whom we are gathered. Whenever I meet someone new here at Oak Church, my go-to question is always, what brought you to Oak? And I love to hear stories about how folks ended up at our little neighborhood church, some who've lived in Durham their whole lives, some who moved to Durham for school or work to be closer to family or for a different pace of life than the one they had where they lived before. But for all our varied reasons of being a part of this community, the primary reason that we're here is that we are gathered by Christ. All of the awesome community building stuff that we do, like potluck, kickball, women's brunches, Oak Bros hangs, block party, all of that only be happens because we are gathered together in and by Christ. 
It's impossible to understand what it means to be the body of Christ without first acknowledging that we have been taken by Christ. After we've been taken, the next thing we are as the body of Christ is blessed. If you're anything like me, you might approach questions of identity through a really practical lens. Like if I'm a part of a community, I want to know what I have to do what actions I should take to line up with what's expected of people who claim membership in that community. In other words, I often strive to prove my belonging by living up to the expectations of whatever community I'm a part of. Don't worry about me too much. Uh, I'm in therapy and working on it. So, yeah. But where does this desire to prove oneself through performance come from? You might be familiar with a concept called the Protestant work ethic. I really wish Brody was here because I kind of put this reference in here for him specifically. <laughs> uh, Max Weber was a German economist and sociologist who at the turn of the 20th century was trying to account for the rise of capitalism in Europe and the US. Weber attributed that rise to what he called the Protestant work ethic or the Protestant ethic which was the idea that religious Protestants place a high value on hard work, thriftiness, and efficiency in one's worldly calling. And he notes that for Protestants, these characteristics are generally seen as proof that they were among the elect, among God's chosen people. But rather than operating from a place of secure belonging among the people of God, Weber argued that people would often strive to work harder to be more productive than their neighbors because what was at stake was not simply having enough money to enjoy life's luxuries. What was at stake was of eternal value. If you slowed down at all, you lost your advantage over others because someone might outwork you and bring your blessedness into question. So as we think about what it means to be blessed as the body of Christ, I'm reminded of Jesus' baptism. Before Jesus kicked off his ministry, he was baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit descended like a dove, and a voice from heaven proclaimed, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And at this point, Jesus hadn't done any miracles, hadn't preached any sermons, hadn't ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, hadn't given himself over to be crucified and resurrected. He hadn't done anything, but he was affirmed and blessed. So Jesus, in the way that he usually does, flips the scripts of our world upside down. And in a world that values things like hard work, awards, and high salaries as proof of value, proof of blessedness, Jesus affirms that we are blessed before we are given any instruction for what to do as the body of Christ. Henry Nouwen says this of blessing. Without affirmation, it is hard to live well. To give someone a blessing is the most significant affirmation that we can offer. It's more than a word of praise or appreciation. It's more than pointing out someone's talents and good deeds. It's more than putting someone in the light. To give a blessing is to affirm, to say yes to a person's belovedness. And more than that, to give a blessing creates the reality of which it speaks. There's a lot of mutual admiration in the world, just as there is a lot of mutual condemnation. 
A blessing goes beyond the distinction between admiration or condemnation, between virtues or vices, between good deeds or evil deeds. A blessing touches the original goodness of the other, calls forth his or her belovedness. So hear this good news, beloved. Christ says that you are blessed. You are blessed. Having established our blessedness, we now arrive at the more difficult reality of what it means to be Christ's body, the reality of our brokenness. I think the metaphor or image breaks down a little bit here. In our first two categories, Jesus is the one who is taking and blessing us. But I don't want to say that Jesus is the one who, having gathered and blessed us, then breaks us. I've heard a lot of sermons that try to justify brokenness and suffering by saying something along the lines of, God's just breaking you down to prepare you for the blessings that are around the corner. And I don't think that the life that we have in Christ comes with this sort of rug-pull theology that says that Christ blesses us just so that he can break us just to bless us again. Seems kind of confusing to me. Seems like an abusive cycle, and it doesn't really work for thinking about what it means to be the body of Christ. So rather than thinking in terms of Christ breaking his body, I wonder if it's more helpful to say that Christ's body just is broken. It's a feature, not a bug. Not that we come to Christ to be broken, but that we come to Christ in our brokenness. Christ gathers us and blesses us as broken people. Turning again to Henry Nouwen, I realize that the sermon is kind of a book report on Henry Nouwen, so if you miss anything today, just check out Life of the Beloved, Henry Nouwen. He probably said it way better than I'm saying it. So. So turning again to Henry Nouwen, he offers two suggestions for how we might respond to the fact of our brokenness. First, by befriending it, and second, by putting it under the blessing. Our natural response to pain and suffering is to ignore it, but by befriending our brokenness, we open the door for healing, become intensely familiar with something that is just as intimate a part of our being, our being as our chosenness and our blessedness. Next, by putting our brokenness under the blessing, we allow Christ's blessing to reach the deepest, darkest parts of us to bring healing. We become fully integrated people, not ignoring our blessedness because of the weight of our brokenness and not ignoring our brokenness just to focus on the good things in life. To quote now and again, here, joy and sorrow are no longer each other's opposites, but have become the two sides of the same desire to grow to the fullness of the beloved. Being the body of Christ means knowing that our brokenness, all of our faults and weaknesses, are just as welcome at the table as our blessedness, all of our strengths, all of our gifts. Just as being gathered, blessed, and broken are essential parts of our identity as Christ's body, we must also understand that we are given. Christ's body is meant to be shared. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus didn't take the bread, bless it, break it, and then keep it all for himself. 
Instead, he gave it to the two travelers who, at that very moment, said that their eyes were opened so that they could make sense of the world in a new way. Jesus met these two on the road and spent an entire afternoon explaining to them how he was the fulfillment of everything that had been written in Scripture up to that point. And it wasn't until he gave them some bread that they finally understood. This is really discouraging to me as someone who spent a lot of time and money to be trained to explain the Bible to people, that bread went out over explanation. But just as the bread of Christ's body that was given at the Last Supper and on the road to Emmaus opened up a new way of seeing the world for those who shared in the feast, we as Christ's body are given and sent into the world. And in the giving, we, have, we too have the opportunity to invite others into this upside-down kingdom of God, a kingdom in which the last are first, the poor are wealthy, the scattered are gathered, and the broken are blessed. It can be pretty intimidating to think about being given to the world when it seems like you just don't have that much to give. The problems of the world are big and lofty and often out of our control. But be encouraged, friends, that the God who sends us into the world to be nourishment for the hungry is the same God who took five loaves and two fish and fed thousands. In the giving and the sending, the world's economy of scarcity is replaced by God's economy of abundance in which everyone has something to give. So we'd normally close with prayer followed by about 90 seconds of silence. Um, I'd like to try something different this week and lead us in an examine, sort of short guided reflection on these categories of being taken blessed, broken, and given. So to start, get comfortable wherever you're at. You can close your eyes. Take a few deep breaths. Draw your attention to Jesus, the still small voice of God. When you feel peaceful, reflect on the ways that Christ has gathered you into his body. This could be a particular event that was really meaningful, kind of changed the course of your life. This could be just steady faithfulness. How have you been gathered by Christ?
Friends, reflect on this affirmation that Christ says that you are blessed. Think about the ways that Christ's blessing have shown up in your life. Now being thankful for Christ's blessing, we turn to our brokenness. We all have our own scripts that we rehearse about our brokenness. Take some time to reflect on God's script about your brokenness. What does Christ say? What does Christ see? And now think of the ways in which Christ is giving you to the world. This could be through your profession, through relationships in your neighborhood, right in your own home. In what ways is Christ giving you to the world? I'll close us with this prayer. O God, make of us some nourishment for these starved times, some food for our brothers and sisters who are hungry for gladness and hope, that being bread for them, I may also be fed and full. Amen.